0: Paul by the Holy Spirit writes, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? Now there's a couple of ways to understand that statement according to the flesh. It could be referring to the fact that Abraham, our father, through natural descent. Abraham our father according to the flesh, through natural descent. What, what shall we say of him? Or it could say, What we find in Abraham, our father, who was our heir, and through natural descent we came from him. Or Paul could be saying, What shall we say about Abraham our father? and what he himself found according to his own self-effort. That might be the other way in which Paul is speaking, and we don't really know. In a sense, it might help us to understand that second way, to put a focus on what Paul is going to write, but it won't change what Paul is going to say next. Here's what we read in verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, he might be able to impress all of us with his good performance, but God sees deeper than we can see. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now right there, Paul is actually giving an almost direct quote to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, only 15 chapters into the revealed word of God in the Old Testament, we are told there that Abraham believed in the lord and he speaking of the lord accounted it to him for righteousness abraham believed in the lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness so right there in genesis fifteen six, is the very first verse in the bible that lays out clearly for us the doctrine of justification by faith you're made righteous by faith it's not just a new testament concept it's right there In some of the very first parts of the Bible, in Genesis 15, verse 6. Now in verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now, that's a direct quote from Psalm 32, 1 and 2 written by David. So if you're a good Jew, the one thing that you'd want above everything else is to be a chip off the old block. You'd want to have your life be expressive of your forefathers' lives. In fact... The block that basically want to be chipped off of is Abraham. That's what Isaiah was speaking about. We had that read as our scripture reading. Let me read you the first two verses again of Isaiah 51. It says there in Isaiah 51 verses 1 and 2, Listen to me, Isaiah writes, You who follow after righteousness, you who want to be righteous and are pursuing righteousness, listen to me, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and look to the hole or pit from which you were dug. Basically, look to the quarry from which you were mined forth Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah, the one who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. I fulfilled my promises to him. And and then the rest of that word of Isaiah is really extolling the salvation and the righteousness that God wants to bring and would bring to the people of Israel. And he's saying, look, it's going to come to you basically the same way that it came to Abraham. And so, look, a good Jew wanted to be a chip off of the old block. He wanted to follow Abraham. They hailed Abraham as the epitome of righteous conduct he was the individual who lived his life in such a way that to him god in response brought to him the salvation or the covenant relationship that came upon him and then has come to all of us he's an advertisement in a sense of what good works and obeying the law of god and following and submitting to the prescribed expressions of righteousness such as circumcision you know abraham was the first to get circumcised He's the one who, in a sense, demonstrating by his willingness to obey God and do good works, his willingness to follow the law of God, and his willingness to succumb to the prescribed rules and rituals that God places before him was right before God and entered into a covenant with God. And so we're just trying to follow Abraham's example. In fact, actually, the Jews had, in a sense, two, maybe three great heroes of the faith. There was Abraham, there was David, and we could probably throw Moses in there as well. But in this passage... Paul looks at Abraham and David, these two icons of the Jewish life and the heroes and the expressions of righteousness. Abraham, they knew was right because the Bible says, and they understood that Abraham was called a friend of God. That's a demonstration that he really lived a good life and a right life because he was a friend of God. And then King David was the most righteous of all the kings. And what do we read about David? We read that David was a man after God's own heart. The Jews understood that Abraham was a friend of God because he was righteous. And that David was a man after God's own heart because he had found and he had lived the prescribed righteous life that God delighted in. And we want to be like Abraham and we want to be like David. So these are the two individuals that Paul identifies. Because Paul wants to talk to them about and continue forcing upon them the argument that you're not saved by your conduct. You're not saved by your good works. You don't come in a covenant relationship with God because you do good works. It's not because you followed some religious prescriptions and some rituals that God has laid down before you. It's not because you followed the law. It's purely by faith. And then Paul says, All right, let's follow the example of Abraham and David and see how righteousness came to them. And now he's going to show to them that it was by faith alone. Now this is kind of interesting to come at this point in the book of Romans because if you've been following this along from Romans chapter 1 all the way through to the end of Romans chapter 3, Paul has been knocking down every idea that an individual can get to their own righteousness by their own good deeds. He has been overwhelmingly showing them not only that they're not righteous but they're under God's judgment and that their own experience and their own experience before these laws just keeps proving over and over and over again that they can't do it on their own that they're not righteous in their own, that the whole course of the law and coming for the law is that it declares everyone guilty before God. And so it leaves them with no other option but to find their righteousness by putting their faith in what God has provided alone. And you think, okay, it's done. He's made the argument. He's finished. We've come to the end of chapter 3 and said, Paul, you've made your case. You're done. And then in chapter 4, he takes the argument all over again. And now he goes back all the way to Abraham and David to prove his point all over again. All I can say is this. One of the most cherished fantasies of human beings is the dream that they can make it before God on their own, on their own moral development. And it's a difficult instinct to put to rest. We just keep coming back to it over and over and over again. And even once you put your faith in Jesus, I'm just trusting him as my Lord and Savior A week later, you're dialing back into your performance. I'll just be a little better, and then I'll gain God's approval and God's acceptance. And in fact, the most offensive suggestion to this instinct in human nature to prove that we can somehow nourish and nurture in us some basic goodness in us, that we can grow up like some great tree, and then we can climb up through our ability, this tree of goodness that rises from us to get into God's presence. The one great threat to this deeply embedded instinct in human nature is the doctrine that you can only be saved through faith alone and not through anything that you can do in any ability you have in yourself faith in something that is completely outside of yourself that would be given to yourself and so actually natural man will accept almost any kind of religious prescription and any kind of religion that suggests that they might think that the religious person is a quack for different reasons But they'll basically go along and not be offended by the effort that people are putting in to be good persons and prove themselves. There's one religion that ultimately, instinctively, they naturally turn away from. It's any religion that suggests that you can't gain your righteousness by your own effort. That you dismiss the ability to accomplish it in yourself. And as a result, Paul is just going to have to keep coming back to this over and over and over again. If you're tired of this message, you might not want to bother picking up your Bible and reading the New Testament at all. Don't even bother reading Paul's letters because it's not just in the book of Romans. It's in all the books. It's in all the letters. It's in all that it wrote. There's no righteousness apart from that which comes by faith. you recall that the accusation that had kind of been made about Paul, we spoke about last week, was the accusation that if this teaching that we are saved through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone were true that it threatened all the accumulation of the stories that God was giving and God was teaching to the nation of Israel. It was dismissing all the lessons that we are learning from the forefathers about how important it is to follow the law and be a good person and to subscribe yourself and to submit to all the rituals and laws that God had given to Israel. And if we're just saved by faith alone, through grace alone, the free gift to us alone, in belief in Jesus Christ alone, Paul, you're setting aside and you're nullifying that whole narrative, that whole story. Paul is saying these things in chapter 4 to prove that that idea is completely untrue. He's going to demonstrate here that the two greatest heroes of the nation who are indeed heroes of righteousness came to that righteousness not by keeping of works or by following religious prescriptions or by keeping the law, but they came to that righteousness only by faith. Just like they had to as well. They're wrong. Paul is not undermining the great story and the great narrative that you find throughout the Old Testament. He's affirming it. Jesus Christ is affirming that doctrine. So let's look at this first. He's going to look at two examples. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the example of Abraham. And we're going to look at the example of David. It won't take us so long to look at the example of David. We'll take our time looking at the example of Abraham. We won't be able to look at this whole chapter all at once. We'll have to go back to it a few times. But let's start here. And the first thing we see here is Abraham, Paul is saying, is an example of salvation by faith. He says here, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. We might ask ourselves very quickly, what was this belief that Abraham had? To understand that, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 12, where God meets Abraham and God makes a promise to Abraham. And he calls Abraham out of the Community and the city and the land that he was living in to go to another land that God was going to show him that God promises to give to him. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 12 and let's read verses 1 and 3 together. There we'll see the initial promise that God makes to Abraham. So Genesis 12 1 and 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families or all the nations of the earth will be blessed so here's God's promise that God gives to Abram Abraham does leave and he does go to this place that God has led him to take your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 15 because now in Genesis chapter 15 Abraham is questioning God on this promise basically the question is how is it that you're going to raise up a great nation from me that you're going to bless And through me, bless other nations when I don't even have an heir. I'm old and my wife is old and we don't have a single child. We're childless. And so God answers Abram in verses 1 through 6 of Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. This is one of his servants. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring, and indeed one born in my house is my heir. In other words, here is this Eliezer who has been born in my home as a servant or as a slave, and he's the closest thing that I have to an heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir. But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. I don't know. We can't really enjoy or appreciate living in a city, what that's like. But you imagine where he is out in the middle of the wilderness. And he's looking up at the sky in the pirouette of all the stars around him. Look at all those stars above you. And then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Verse 6. This is the key. And he believed in the Lord, and God, the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. And this is what faith was. This is what faith is. It's believing God's promise. It's trusting God's word to us. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, basically, in effect, that what God wants above everything else is to be believed. What God wants from you and from us above everything else is simply to be believed. And not only that, God considers himself so supremely believable. He considers his word and his promise and what he gives to us so supremely believable that believing in him is nothing to boast about. What God has revealed What God calls us to, to believe and trust in Him, which He wants above everything else. Believing Him, when we we concede and we believe in Him. God basically, God's heart, God's attitude is, this is right, this is according to reality. I am the one through which all life is constructed upon. It's my word that was spoken, that gave existence to all things. Believing in my word is nothing to boast about. It's no great accomplishment. It's the obvious and the right thing to do. And so actually we read about that in Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Remember in the first 27 of Romans chapter 3, Paul writes where is boasting then when he's talking about us being made right. He said it's excluded. He says, by what law? And think of law there as demand. He says, by the demand of doing good works. No, it's not excluded by the demand of doing good works. If you do good works and you follow that demand and you fulfill all the things that have been demanded of you, you might have something to boast about. No, it's excluded by this demand. The demand of faith. God has called us or demanded that we believe in Him. And yet God has given such incredible, a, a wonderful, believable, convincing proofs of Himself that yielding to that demand of faith is nothing to boast about. It's the obvious thing in which you must do. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We said that, listen, if an individual said, well, I'm going to be right before God because I'm going to follow all the demands of the law... I'm going to obey it perfectly. I'm going to do everything God has said to me. I'm going to do it by doing everything He wants me to do and not doing anything He doesn't want me to do. And I'm going to do it by controlling and guarding all of my thoughts and all of my instincts so that everything in my thought life and everything that I do is channeled in perfection before Him. And a person actually does that and fulfills that? Huh? That would be something to brag about. You might be able to put your thumb under your lapel and say, I did it! And stand before God, righteous. And but there's no one. No one has ever done that, except for one. And we will boast in Him. We will put our brag on Him. There's one who before God has been perfectly righteous and sinless in every way, Jesus Christ. And we exalt and we brag and we boast in His righteousness because of His absolute and complete righteousness that we place all of our faith in Him to save us and rescue us and deliver us And yet His righteousness is so true and so convincing and so wonderful that putting our faith in Him, which is the demand, believe on Him and you'll be saved. It's a demand. But meeting that demand is nothing to boast about. Your faith in Jesus is the obvious step you're to take, but it's nothing that you can boast about. It's dismissed entirely. So it says here, for if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about. But he doesn't. We'll go on to read about it. It's not because he followed the law and kept all the law that he has something. And that's because he didn't follow the law and he couldn't keep all the law. He has nothing to boast about. His righteousness came by faith entirely. We cannot keep, we have never kept the demand of the moral law. We've only put our trust in the one promise that God gave us to save us through so the one, the only one who has kept that law perfectly in every way. We've put our faith in him and as a result we're saved. Abraham... Think about that moment back in chapter 15, has received a promise from God and he's coming before God without any of the required potency to fulfill what the promise is. The promise is, look Abraham, look at those stars. Your family and all that's going to come from your body is going to be as many as the stars in heaven and Abraham is an old man, his wife is barren and Abraham is impotent. He has nothing to offer to accomplish that whatsoever. There's nothing in himself. He has no ability whatsoever to bring about the error. All he has is this. Where his power has come to a complete end, he has the promise of God. And everything begins, and every hope begins in God and His promises. And the Bible says, Abraham, against the reality of his own impotency, his own inability, Abraham just believed God. He believed God for the promise and was accounted to him as righteousness. Have you ever thought of that? Your faith is just simply being in the moment which there's nothing you can do for yourself, nothing you accomplish for yourself, nothing that you can offer to God, and you just believe a promise God has given you, and that's all it takes. Think about the thief on the cross. You know, For a period of time, he was reviling the Lord Jesus like everyone else around the cross. He was reviling the Lord Jesus like the thief that was on the other side of Kim on the other side of the Lord Jesus was suffering in the middle of them and he was reviling them at, at some point in time as time was passing through God did something miraculous and opened his heart to see and recognize that Jesus was the righteous one so righteous that he was about to enter into a kingdom that he would claim and would be his forever. So that this was the Messiah and so this thief who was on the cross says Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom that's all he said remember me when you come into your kingdom And the Lord Jesus said, in essence, I will. This day you'll be with me in paradise. I will. And in that moment, God granted to that thief faith to believe that what the Lord Jesus had just promised him was true. And he was made right. And he was righteous. He hadn't figured out what was happening on the cross yet. He hadn't come to a theological understanding of the vicarious atonement that Jesus was dying for his sins. He hadn't understood justification by faith that Jesus was going to pour out upon him his own righteousness. He didn't understand the concept of the Trinity. I doubt he understood entirely that this was God and flesh before him. He didn't know that either. He hadn't figured out all those theological important things. He just believed that the one who is promising him everlasting life was going to keep his promise. And he had nothing to offer. Nothing to offer. He was a criminal and he admitted he was a criminal and he deserved to die and he had admitted in his expression to the other thief that they both were getting what they deserved. They had nothing to offer. He just believed in the one that was before him and he was saved. Have you ever thought of that? That saving faith is just believing that God will keep his promise. What God has said is true. It's believing that you can't claim it by your effort, by your energy, by your planning, by your strategy, by your trying, by your methodically placing together some process to make it so. You just just believe what God says is true. What did that belief in God bring to Abraham? It says it, it brought to his account something. The word said it was counted to him as righteousness. And the word there is going to be repeated about six times by Paul. And it simply means, it's as if in this writing here, The Spirit is leading Paul to look at the life of Abraham like a bank account. And all of a sudden in the bank account is deposited something that wasn't there before. Simply because he believed that what God said was true and that God was going to do it against his own impotency, against his complete inability, God was going to do something that he didn't have. And at that very moment, it says it was accounted to him. It was like God put onto his bankroll, his account, righteousness. What wasn't there before was suddenly appearing in his account. He was righteous before God. I don't know if in that moment, when that took place, whether there's something grew up in Abraham in which he sensed the confirmation that he was right before God. I'm not sure. I don't know the reality of how it was expressed to him, but this is what God had done. At that moment, he accredited to Abraham what Abraham did not have prior to that moment. That's part of the argument here. See, the Jew thinks, see, Abraham had accumulated a righteous life and a good life, and it brought him up to the point where God entered into a covenant with him because he was such a good man. And what Paul is saying is, no, up until the moment in which he believed God's promise, he had no righteousness, and God accounted it to him. God put it into his account. He's going to go on and express this even more, but that's the argument. So what did this belief not include, this belief that Abraham had to offer? Well, here's one of the things it didn't include. It didn't include one iota of works in order to gain the accounting of righteousness. Verses 4 and 5 of Romans 4. Let's look at that now. Paul writes, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace. The things that he receives are not a gift, but a debt that's paid, that's fulfilled. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted. It's an account. It's put on the ledger of his life. For righteousness. There's two reasons upon which you might drop money into another person's account. One is you owe them that money. There's another reason, which is you give it to them as a gift. Now, listen, if you're an employee and you've got an employer who pays you every two weeks, and every two weeks he pays you for the services that you provide from the work you do, that employer is not going to convince you that he's putting money into your account out of the generosity of his own heart. He doesn't call you and say, hey, listen, I just want you to know, you know, John or Dan or Phil. Uh, I'm giving you a gift today. I'm gifting you such and such amount of money. And you look at your thing and you think, wait a second here. That's exactly what I make an hourly wage. If I add up my hours, that's exactly what he should be paying me for the work that I rendered to him. And he's not going to convince you that you put something to his count because he's generous and he's giving you a gift. You earned it. You earned it. On the other hand, out of the blue he might call you and say, you know, I've just been noticing that you've been struggling a little bit and I know we had an agreement, but I just want you to know that I've, I've just thrown another $3,000 into your account. You weren't expecting it. You didn't ask you to earn it. Now, that's a gift. That's a gift. But when you earn something, it's yours, and when you earn something, he owes it to you. He owes it to you. What do we said about God? God will be no man's debtor. He is not going to give to you the most precious gift of all salvation as payment for anything. Actually, you don't want anything from God that you can earn from God. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what you can earn from God. You don't want that payment. You want what He only can give you as a gift. As a gift. He drops righteousness in your account as a complete and total free gift that you're able to access because you believe that he's going to do it. You believe in him. You basically go before God and you say, God, I'm a sinner. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to gain. There's nothing I can give you. There's no payment I can make. There's nothing I can do to change and take away my sin. Oh, God, if you don't forgive me and you don't cleanse me, there's no answer for me. But, oh, God, if you would give me your righteousness, if you would make me righteous. And God says, I'll make you righteous if you believe me for that. I'll make you righteous. I'll make you righteous if you'll believe me for that. And that's it. And it's a credit to us as righteousness. That's what faith is. Faith is just believing that God would give me what I can't gain for myself. And that He would give it to me. He would give it to me. And I take it by faith. Now, there's another thing here. We're going to turn here to look at the life of David, for example. So the second one is we're going to look at the life of David here. Paul comes to David And now he has to explain a statement that he's just made. He's just said that God is one who justifies the ungodly. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing. It's that God doesn't come along and say, you know, this guy is working really hard. He's making a lot of progress. He's climbing and he's trudging up this hill of being a really good person. He's loaded up a lot of good works. He's almost over the hump. He's almost made it. He's almost righteous. And let's give him just that little extra boost. Let's give him what he needs just to get to that Perfect balance or that balance of righteousness, and then he'll be righteous. That's not what this verse says. It says, God justifies, makes righteous who? The ungodly. He makes just the ungodly. What's the description of the ungodly? I won't do this for you right now, but go back and read the last half of Romans chapter one if you want a picture of the ungodly. There's a picture of what Paul says of the individuals. Who suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and ungodliness. The Bible says God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness of men. All ungodliness. Read Romans 3 verses 10 through 18. And the depiction of what an ungodly person looks like misery and destruction is in their way. The way of God they don't know. The poison of cobras is under their tongues. Right? Their life pours forth the stench of an open grave. That's the description ungodly here's what the passage says god justifies the ungodly i can't work for that you can't hurt that and then he says let me give you another example we've just talked about abraham and we can see how god justified abraham by the way let me go back to abraham very quickly because this will be a little bit of a review of what's ahead of us there's a little more of an argument so the Jews thought, well, you know, you're justified by your good works. And Paul basically says, no, because if you're justified because you've done good works, that's pay, and God won't be any man's debtor. And they said, well, no, Abraham was justified because he was circumcised. And they say, no, Romans chapter 15, verse 6, where it says that he believed God and he was justified, came roughly 14 to 29 years before Abraham was circumcised. In other words, he was just long before God said, which is good news for us, long before he went through the prescription of justification of a religious act of circumcised. How about the law? No, he was justified because he followed all the laws. No, the law didn't come till 430 years after Abraham. He wasn't following the law to be just. The sacramental system hadn't been laid out yet. He was just simply because he believed in God, because God justifies the ungodly. Oh, speaking of ungodly, let's turn our attention from Abraham. Let's look at David for a while. Ungodly. And then he takes us to the story of David. He quotes to us the life of David and he takes us to a passage in which David is dealing with a sin that he's committed. A sin that he's committed against Bathsheba. A sin of premeditated adultery and then premeditated murder. Something that David planned and something that David executed. How I think the Jews understood this, but There was no provision in all of the law or all the sacrificial system that God laid out before the people of Israel for a premeditated sin. If you were enticed by somebody and you were lured into somebody and you were kind of swept up in the moment and you did something you shouldn't do, well, there was actually some sacrifice that you could make to come before God and you would offer that sacrifice and you were promised that God would receive you on the basis of that sacrifice. But if you planned something... And you premeditated it, and you calculated it, and you carried it out. There was no sacrifice for that kind of sin. Have you ever committed that kind of sin? Have you ever gone into some sin with your eyes wide open? Planning it, thinking, I'll do it. I can get away with this. I'll do it today, and then tonight I'll ask for forgiveness. There was no provision for the Jew and the sacrificial system for that kind of sin, that kind of choice here's david who has committed this awful act he's committed adultery and then he's had the man killed and then nathan has come and revealed to him his sin and told him what he's done the prophet nathan and and maybe david turned to nathan and said you're right i'm guilty we've got to find an answer to this what would god ask of me what gift can i bring him what prescribed action can i take what sacrifice can i make find out what i can do that that can be washed and be absolved from this awful thing that i've done and nathan goes and scours the books and he looks at it and he comes back and he says Nothing. There's no answer. There's no remedy for this sin. There's no prescription. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you bring to God. God doesn't give you anything. It's on you. There's no way to remove it. You're just ungodly. You're just going to have to sit in your ungodliness. And now David turns to God and David says, I've got nothing. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can offer. I'm a sinner. I've done these things. I'm guilty before you. You're just and damning me. There's no way out of this. God be merciful to me. I have nothing to bring to you. God be merciful to me. God forgive me. Cleanse me of this awful thing. Because there's no answer for it. And God answers. And God cleanses him. And God washes him. And God forgives him. and The Bible says at that, that moment, Paul writes here, God imputed righteousness to him. And by the way, it's the same word as accounted. It's the exact same word that we read you, that God accounted uh, Abraham's faith as righteousness. Here it says God imputed righteousness to him. It's the same word God put to the account of David what David didn't have himself. In fact, what David had instead was just ungodliness, just ungodliness what was a seemingly unforgivable sin with no answer for it. Verses 7 and 8 give us the words that David proclaims because God did for him what he could never do himself. God took away his sin. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. When God makes you righteous by just believing in Him, He does two things. He puts to your account what was not there. He puts to your account of your life what was not there. All is righteous. Not only that, He takes from your account. He doesn't add up in your account what is there. Sin. Ungodliness. He does two things. I'm not going to count any of this sin against Him. I'm going to count all of my righteousness for Him. All that happens... All that happens simply as a response of faith. See, Jews, you're trying to follow and tread your way into righteousness by following the prescribed laws, and you boast in your circumcision and your religious acts, and you, you try to be a good person, you think somehow, and you keep going back to it, that you can somehow put yourself in a better position to, before God because what's most important is your good works and your deeds, and your following all the laws, and you think Abraham is your example, and you think David is your example. Abraham was made righteous because he simply believed God's promise. David was declared righteous in the face of his awful sin. While he was yet ungodly. That's the whole story. That's the story that you should read in the Old Testament. That's the argument. We still need to hear this argument ourselves. Let's make five really quick applications. First application. It's time to give up. Finally and forever, your fantasy of getting right with God by your good deeds. He has nothing to pay you that you want, but he has a gift to give you that you need. And you live under the wonderful reality of that gift. Here's the second thing. The teaching of justification by faith as our salvation and right standing with God is not a New Testament concept. It was faith in a promise keeping God from beginning to end. It was faith that God was good for His promise that He would make righteous those who believed on Him alone from beginning to end. Here's another one. There are not many ways to God or many means of salvation. One man is not saved by faith and another man saved by works. It wasn't salvation by works in the Old Testament. It was salvation by faith. There is one way of salvation. It is faith that believes God's promises In God's way of righteousness and of salvation that comes to us as a gift alone. I just believe in it. Always the case. Always the case. Here's another one. The Old Testament. This might be just valuable for you. The Old Testament is not a relic of the past to be forgotten. These things were written for our instruction. Because this is true, basically what Paul is saying is open up the old book again and look at it again. Look at it with fresh eyes. Read through the Old Testament and don't dismiss it as something that's passe and gone past in the past and doesn't apply to you. Jews, yourself, you've missed the whole purpose and the whole lesson. If you think you can be righteous by your own actions, look and see that salvation is in the arm of the Lord and He's the one who saves. And it's He is our righteousness. He alone is our righteousness. So go back and look and see it and read it and find it over and over again. Last one is our faith is rooted in the revelation of God. That was long being unveiled to individuals. Our faith is rooted in our confidence in Him. Do you believe in Him? How big is your God? Is He big enough to keep His promise? To make you right with Him? Irregardless of how you've lived or what you've done. But because of what He's done and how He lives. And never trust in yourself, in your own efforts, live by faith in Him. Bow your heads with me. I'll start the prayer by just reading to you a little poem from James Proctor. Nothing either great or small, nothing sin or no, Jesus died and paid it all long, long ago. When he from his lofty throne stooped down in love to die. Everything was fully done. Finished was his cry. Weary, working, burdened one. Why are you toiling so? Stop your doing. All was done long, long ago. Take hold of Jesus. Work for you with a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Yes, doing ends in death. Put all that deadly working down, down at the Savior's feet. Trust in Him, in Him alone, and be gloriously complete. Lord Jesus, You are all our life, and we are all unrighteousness. You are the justifier. We, in and of ourselves, are the ungodly. Your righteousness is perfect and pure in every way. Our good works are like filthy rags. God, we thank you for impulses to do what is right and good. Thank you for the longing. Thank you for the desire. But also thank you, God, for the frustration and the lesson again and again. We can't do it. Thank you because it points us, and the longing even points us to one who can and who has. And a promise that you've made through him that by believing in him we might be right. Right. How how good it would be and good it is to be comfortable in our own skin because we're just right before you. Not uneasy, not shuffling about, not tirelessly moving, trying to find an answer. But being able to be before the God of all creation, the holy God of all creation. I stand before you at rest complete, not in our actions but in the actions and the provision of our Savior, Jesus. Thank you for this place. Forgive us when we move out from it to try to prove ourselves in our own strength. Thank you, Jesus. There's life for a look at our Savior and life that's abundant and free. Would you take it by faith? Would you believe in His promise? Are you trustworthy, O God? O God, you are trustworthy. Your word is the truth. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.